The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to gather uh, around your word tonight. And as we come to this incredible, this amazing topic of the creation of God, um, by God, of all things visible and invisible, I pray that you would uh, open our eyes to this truth, Lord. Uh, these are things that we have known since perhaps we were little babies. Uh, but Lord, the depths of, of the, the truth wrapped up in the physical creation of the universe and uh, all the things that surround us, uh, still we haven't plumbed the depths of it. And I pray that we would understand who you are by what you have made. Uh, Father, I pray that your word would rightly interpret those things for us. I pray that our thoughts would be wrapped up uh, in the greatness of God and what he's done. And I pray that we would look forward to the new heaven, the new earth, uh, which will be far superior to this present situation, which is cursed by sin. Father, we can't really imagine what a world not cursed by sin would look like because this is all we've ever known. We were born as descendants of Adam, sons and daughters of Adam. We were born in sin, and sin our mothers conceived us, and not just us, but everyone around us. And the world itself was subjected to futility, to frustration, uh, but done so in hope uh, that someday it will be liberated from this bondage to decay. And so, Father, I pray that we would meditate on these things. I pray that you'd guide me in my teaching ministry here uh, and help all of us to think well. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're, we're looking at the next uh, section of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which is God the Creator and the creation of God. I want to begin by just uh, uh, reading Psalm 19, which testifies to uh, the creation of God, uh, specifically in the starry host, the cosmos uh, that uh, spreads out over our heads evidence of the greatness of God. So Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, night they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, He has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from His pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run His course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, re reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward." Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So in Psalm 19, you, you know, you have uh, the physical creation. The beginning of the psalm talks about the heavens declaring the glories of God, the skies proclaiming. 
the work of his hands. And then suddenly in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, speaking of that special revelation that is the scripture. And how the two of them, natural revelation or that which is surrounding us in nature and uh, special revelation, specifically the word of the Lord through the prophets, uh, the scriptures, work together to give us a sense of the existence of God. So why don't we begin just by uh, sharing some testimonies. Can you think of a time in your life when the natural, physical world gave you a sense of the greatness of God? And why don't you share that uh, with us? A time of worship you had based on something you saw in nature or in physical creation. Don? I was thinking the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. An amazing thing. You see pictures, mm-hmm. but uh, and all of a sudden you realize just how great God is. When Nathaniel and I went uh, and saw it, what amazed me was how much there was below uh, below me. You know, you're looking at these soaring uh, eagles and uh, birds way below you, and they're so far away. The span, the expanse is immense, and I'll never forget the sunset. People see the sunset of the Grand Canyon. Somebody else, something something from nature. I remember. Uh, Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're driving up through the Texas Panhandle in the middle of nowhere, and we pulled off the road, up the highway on 40, and then stroll on some like, dirt road for a while, and just stopped in the middle of the night and looked up, and I'd never seen that many stars before. Mm-hmm. We got out of the car and just sat there for an hour and looked at it. And it was one of the most magnificent things. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, when you get into the dry, you know, there's no moisture maybe, or less moisture in the atmosphere, and you can just see. Beautiful. Somebody else. Oh, yes. Can't see those very much in the mountains. You know, actually, piggyback on that, I, I remember this. Uh, Carolyn was born in, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, by the Great Ohio River. Um, and uh, I'm saying that somewhat facetiously. I was born in Massachusetts, and I'd seen the ocean, and I wasn't all that impressed with the Ohio. Um, but at any rate, uh, we drove cross-country back. Uh, I don't know how old Carolyn was, but I think it was around the time of Christmas, maybe around Christmas. Is that it? when she first saw the ocean. Do you remember what I'm talking about? One on the Cape? Probably six months. She was... But she was wordless. I remember that. And it's the key to the story was that she couldn't speak. But um, there was a pretty bad storm, and then the next day it was over. But I brought her to Nauset Beach on Cape Cod, and the waves were just crashing in like Oahu, Hawaii, or something. And I'll never forget, I was just holding her, and I was watching her face as we walked through the dunes. Uh, you still couldn't see the ocean, but I could hear it pounding. And I knew it was going to be quite a show. Um, and I knew that she'd never seen it. And so I didn't care about the ocean. I cared about my daughter's face. I wanted to see her face when she saw the ocean for the first time. And so I just kept my eyes right on her, and her eyes just got as big as saucers. I'll never forget that. And she was just in amazement, and she just kept pointing at it. Over and over, the, the same gesture. I know, honey, I know I see it. <laughs> and she's like, don't look at me, look at that. You know, but I was looking at her face and just enjoying the awe and the wonder that was inside her as she was looking at the ocean crashing on the shore. It was, it was awesome. I'll never forget that. Somebody else, one more. Yeah, Jim. I remember as a young boy, my family 
And it, there had been an ice storm, and everything was covered with ice. Mm -hmm. Just literally covered with about a quarter of an inch of ice. Mm -hmm. But the sun had come out, and it had started to melt. The shine mm -hmm. was like diamonds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Plus the sound of it melting, you know, mm -hmm. the tinkling mm -hmm. of it as it as it fell from the trees. That's something. That's something. Yeah, I, I think about the sounds. I remember uh, camping with my father. My father, uh, camping for him was hiking in the White Mountains. I mean, Christy, when she was growing up, she would go to campgrounds. And I, I don't think we ever went to a campground. We always went hiking. And we would hike up, you know, high up just below the tree line there in, in, in New Hampshire. The mountains had a certain line above which no trees grew. And, you know, you could see for miles and miles. But I remember... Uh, camping with him and just hearing the sound of the wind as it blew down through the ravines. It was a three-dimensional sound. You know what I'm saying? It was just deeper than any wind I'd ever heard before, and I just loved that sound. You know, it's interesting as you look at Psalm 19 how the psalm begins with natural revelation and then goes to the law of the Lord is perfect. And frankly, that's the way every single one of us gets it. We all get n natural revelation first. Because we're wordless, just like Carolyn. We can't understand the word of the Lord. So you have a whole bunch of experiences stored up in your brain before you ever hear the word of the Lord. And then at some point, then the word of the Lord comes in and starts to sort those experiences out and, and interpret them for you and tell you what it's about and get the universe figured out and explained. But nature comes first. You know, the experience you have with your mother uh, with your parents, the times you had learning to eat and, and sleep and walk and just live. That came first. And I don't put it above the Word of God. I'm just saying it's a fact and you know what I'm talking about. They don't come home from the hospital and you teach them the catechism. It just doesn't go that way. You know, you feed them, you, you, you bathe them, you take care of them. And meanwhile, under the Lord, they're learning all the time, constantly learning. And I've also come to realize that the Bible itself is unintelligible apart from nature absolutely unintelligible. The words would literally mean nothing. If you were born and put in some cinder block room and had all your biological needs met and then learned the word, the word would be unintelligible to you. You wouldn't know what compassion was. You wouldn't know what anger was. You wouldn't know what kindness was. You wouldn't know what any... It, all of those happen in the theater of this world that God's made. And then the word of God is intelligible. And the two of them just totally fit together. So Psalm 19 is really amazing in that way. How you get, you know, the law of the Lord being perfect, but that's only in the middle of the psalm. You know, the heavens are telling the glory of God. That's what comes first. So we're looking at the doctrine of creation, God the creator, and uh, how, it, uh, how it works. Uh, so take your hand out. Uh, Wayne Grudem in a systematic theology. God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it to glorify himself. These are the basic concepts we're going to get across tonight. Uh, God created the entire universe out of nothing. Recently reading R.C. Sproul's book, Holiness, and he meditates for a while on nothing and actually says it really can't be done. You can't think about nothing. I mean, seriously, just clear your mind. And so what are we going, Buddhist here? No, 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 clear your mind. Think of nothing. It really can't be done. And so if you're trying to imagine what the universe was like before there was a universe, you can't do it. But there just was nothing. This is what the, the Latin ex nihilo, God creating out of nothing. There was nothing there except God, and he isn't a thing. And so there just was nothing, and then there was something. And it's something that we just cannot fathom. We can't really imagine what that is. And, and then you look around, and you just see all of this immenseness around, 
or immensitude or whatever it is. Just this, the, the stuff that's around us and you think uh, that's an incredible display of the power of God, especially if you trace it back as best you can to nothingness. There was nothing and now there is something. And so that's what we're talking about. God created the universe out of nothing. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word beginning implies that, there, that that's where the heavens and the earth started. Before that, there was nothing. There were no heavens or earth. There was no created thing, just God. <clears throat> Psalm 33, 6 and following, it says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their starry host, uh, by the breath of his mouth, he gathers the waters uh, of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This is a consistent teaching in the Bible that God created by his word. And so by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Psalm 33 teaches that. This is where you get the idea of creation out of nothing. You're really not going to find a verse that specifically says those words. But basically it teaches everything that has been made, God made. Everything there was to be made, it was God that made it. John 1, 3, through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. So that's the creation of everything that there was. Acts 17, 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hand. So it teaches again that God made all things. In Romans 4, 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom we believe, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And I think that's a hearkening back to creation, that language in Romans 4, 17. God calls things that are not as though they were. Think about it. Which came first, light or the word light? If God says, let there be light and there is light, then the word came first. So the concept of light before there was light, the word light before there was light, and then came light. And so it all comes in the mind of God first, everything, including you. So first it had to be in God's mind, and then he speaks it, and then it happens. That's really the order that we have here. God calls things that are not as though they were. What's interesting there is it's in Romans 4, 17, where he's talking about justification by faith. He calls you righteous, though you are not. Isn't that something? And, and so he declares you to be righteous, and then he makes you righteous. That's our whole salvation. And uh, you may not feel very righteous, you know, the, the repentant sinner, you know, a moment after being justified by faith isn't feeling very righteous, but they are righteous in God's sight. God calls them so. And then he creates that righteousness, you know, through sanctification and glorification makes it so. So it's a powerful thing when you think about it. God calls things that are not as though they were. And then Hebrews 11:3. by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So in other words, there wasn't anything. We humans rearrange. That's what we do. We take what is and make stuff out of it. All right? God didn't have anything to work with, uh, but he had his omnipotence and that was enough. But he was able to create these things. So what is seen was not made out of what was visible. It was made out of God, is, is really what Hebrews 11.3 is saying. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And then again, Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. 
So the concept here is that God made everything that was made. Um, A.W. Tozer gives us that sense also um, in the knowledge of the holy of an infinite gap between uh, everything that was made and the creator who made it. And so there is just an infinite gap between God and everything else. That's the holiness of God. He's just separate from all things that he created. There's just that infinite gap. And, and, you know, he says that there's a, a bigger gap between the archangel and God than there is between the worm and the archangel. And so we're actually closer to the archangel than we are to God because he's infinitely above uh, all of these things. So an amazing, amazing concept. Secondly, creator of everything in heaven and on earth. Okay. So the details of this, when they heard this at Acts 4.24, uh, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven, and the earth, the sea and everything in them. <clears throat> the, concept, the context here is of Peter and John released after the first arrest. Remember how they healed the man uh, sitting outside the temple gate and they were arrested for it. Um, Sanhedrin not quite ready to persecute them. They would get to that shortly. But I think they were just a bit stunned at that point and released them with a, just a warning not to preach in the name of Jesus and some threats. So they go back to their own, uh, own people and they have a tremendous uh, prayer meeting and they begin by reminding themselves of the doctrine of creation. You know, this is something that, you know, it's like, well, you know, we're coming tonight, it's Wednesday night, doctrine of creation, you know, I know all that. No, you don't. I don't either. I mean, this is where we begin again and again. We come back to this. God made all things. That's what they did that night to comfort themselves in the threat of persecution. And let's not minimize that now. This is the very thing Peter was afraid of. This is why he denied the Lord three times that night that he was arrested. He was afraid of being arrested and hurt or killed. And that same threat was on them. And what do they do? They run to God the Creator. God made all things. And so, you know, that's the thing. Jesus banishes or, or seeks in his teaching to banish anxiety by bringing us to God the Creator. Consider the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. You know, what God has done in that is far less than taking care of whatever little need you have right now and that you're concerned of. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? And I don't so much go at more important. Which is harder, to create the body or to clothe it? <laughs> Which is harder, to, to create life or to feed it and sustain it? It's a harder thing to make it to begin with than it is to keep it going and sustain it. Jesus is arguing from the, from the more surprising to the less surprising. It's, it's less surprising for God to feed us than it is for Him to make us. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look at what God has done in creation. So this is a very useful doctrine. It can banish anxiety in every area. Uh, it can banish fear. You go to the doctrine of God the Creator and your fears go away. And I think that's what, what Jesus is doing in, sorry, in Matthew chapter 6. I don't usually apologize to inanimate objects, but I just did. Don't tell anyone. You were here. I want to move over. All right, there we go. It's better than getting angry at them. Jonathan Edwards in one of his resolutions said, Resolve never to show the slightest motions of anger to, toward inanimate objects. So that's a good thing to do. Have you ever done that? Ever gotten angry at an inanimate object? Don't tell me, but probably you have. All right, moving on. Where did that come from? All right. Uh, Acts 14:15. Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. What's the point of this? Okay, again, this is preaching the gospel. They did a miracle. So uh, Paul and Barnabas did a miracle and they want to worship them as, uh, you know, uh, Apollos and uh, Zeus, I guess, the messenger and then the... the 
king God and, and because they could do this, this miracle. And what do they do? They, they begin their presentation of the gospel to these pagan people with the doctrine of creation. Actually, it was meditating on this that led me in my gospel tract that I wrote, God, Man, Christ Response, to start with God the Creator. That's the best place to start. God is the Creator, therefore God is the King, therefore God is Lawgiver, therefore God is Judge. Those, those, those roles just come right out one after the other. If He's the Creator, then He gets to rule it, right? If He rules it, He gets to make laws. If He ha- makes laws, then He gets to judge us based on it. It just comes right out. And then we add Savior to the fact that we have violated the laws. Those, those ro- roles just come right out of creation. So I actually think it's the best way to preach the gospel because, you know, you're dealing, you never know what you're dealing with. The other day I was with a, a, a woman, you know, Calvin's in a baseball league and I was trying to share the gospel with her and she just had, she had no spiritual background. She had never read the Bible, never been to church, um, had nothing to bring to the table. I really felt like I was starting from scratch with a, with a woman in her, in her mid to late 20s here in America. You know, it's not part of the original equipment. Someone has to teach them about God and about Jesus and about the Bible. And if no one has, you could be in your 20s and not know anything. It actually threw me back a bit. I'm still praying about how to come at it again with this lady and try to share with her. I I don't have much to work with. So I'm going to probably start with creation. You know, the God who made the earth and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, but that's how they, that's how they start. All right, Acts 17, 24 and 25. Well, I just quoted that a moment ago. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Powerful, powerful here. Not just are they preaching the gospel, but they're extending it out into religion. And they're basically saying you should never imagine for a moment that God needs anything from you. The God who made everything doesn't need anything. It's all his anyway. What can you give him that isn't his? He made it all, right? And so basically then, he is not served by human hands as a message for Christians as well as for non-Christians. As if he needs you. I don't mind people using this language, we are Jesus' feet, we are his hands. Do that, fine, but don't ever let go of this concept here. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need... It is grace from God to use us. Isn't that, isn't it grace that we get to be involved in what God's doing? He doesn't need you. And if you think, oh, that sounds kind of harsh. I feel, look, just push it on and say, God, you need me and I know you need me. You could never say that. It would be blasphemous. God doesn't need any of us. But he has chosen to include us graciously. That's why Paul always called his ministry as apostle of the Gentiles grace from God. Surely you've heard of the grace that was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's a grace but God doesn't need anything. And, and that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. And, and the more you meditate on that, then you, you bring that right into your suffering. God can do anything. He is that powerful. He made everything. It is a greater thing for him to create and sustain the universe than it is for him to heal this individual you're praying for healing for. And so therefore, if the individual doesn't get healed, it's God's will. And God is good and loving and provides. You know, read about it in the Psalms. When he gives his breath, they live. When he takes the breath away, they don't live anymore. That's how, how it works. And so God is intimately involved in that. And though that may be difficult for us necessarily to consider, yet I think the alternative is far worse. It's all purposeless, like the evolutionists tell us. We'll get to evolution shortly, not tonight. But, you know, we'll talk about it. But the thing is, it's just meaningless. It's purposelessness. But no, with us, everything has a purpose and God can do anything. He can sustain anything. Isaiah 45, 18, this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. 
He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be emptied, but formed it to be inhabited. He said, I am the Lord and there is no other. Another thing to keep in mind, this uh, verse wasn't in this list of verse here, but I was looking it up just before class. And I love this one as well. It's Isaiah 44 and verse 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. Listen to this. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So what does that verse add? What does that verse teach you about God the Creator? He needed no help. He did it by himself. And even if he could have used some help, there was none. As a matter of fact, then God alone created heaven and earth. Why is that important? Well, the reason it's important is because in the New Testament, it ascribes it to Jesus. And so there's where you get the deity of Christ. Because if you really emphasize Isaiah 40 through 49, those 10 chapters teaches the absolute holiness of Yahweh. And one of the things Yahweh of Isaiah 40 through 49 says is, I do this all by myself. There was no one with me when I made the, the heavens and the earth. There were no angels. There were no created beings. Or there was no assistance. I did this alone. But then the New Testament, Colossians in particular, teaches that he, did, he made all things through Christ. And in, in uh, John 1, without Christ, nothing was made that has been made. Deity of Christ right there. I mean, there's just no other way you get it. There's no inter- I, Jehovah's Witness goes right out the door at that point. I don't know where they get it. I mean, really, the remedy to, to the Jehovah's Witness heresy is Isaiah 40 through 49. You just immerse yourself, marinate yourself in what God is saying there. He's saying, there is no one like me at all. You can't compare me to anyone. The problem with the, the Jews was syncretism. They're trying to mix Yahweh with, with other gods. And, and, and he, through the prophets, like, no, no, there's just no one like me. I'm infinitely above every being, spiritual or physical, infinitely above them. But then along come the Jehovah's Witness say, yes, but there is this one, Jesus, God with a little g. He's up there, but not quite Yahweh. It just doesn't fit into Isaiah 40 through 49. He's either God or, you know, I mean, you can't put them together, so he's God. And so that's the thing. The fact that God created all alone by himself. He needed no help, that is true. He had no help, that is true. He was alone when he made the heavens and the earth. Okay? So, uh, Revelation 10 and verse 6, And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea that it, and all that is in it, and said there will be no more delay. Okay, so this is just a, a, a swearing statement. Now, it's interesting. I mean, Genesis 1 gives us just categories of creation. God goes day by day by day. You know, Moses gives us the account. You know, the first day, this was created. The second day, this was created. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth. And then on the seventh day, God rested. And so he sets up these categories and gives us broad sweeping statements like everything that crawled or moved over the surface of the ground or the birds of the air that moved through the expanse of the, of the sky, etc. Everything that swam in the fish, you know, but not the categories. We learn that just by going to the zoo or by watching Nature Channel or by reading magazines we, or just by living. You just see the immense variety of all that God's made. And it's magnificent, isn't it? I mean, it really is your whole life. People spend their whole lives studying these things coming up with taxonomies of, of different kinds of beings and how they relate to each other and how they're different and their special capabilities. You know, I watched, uh, we were watching, oh, we we're watching NCAA basketball, but we don't like watching commercials. So we kept flipping back to the UNC channel, whatever that is. What, what is that? PBS, yeah. And there was a show on, 
it was a, it was really awesome in some ways better than the basketball game. Um, it was really cool, and you know, it's like it's probably back on, Dad. I know, I know. It's like no, it's on, Dad. Put it back, you know. It's like no, this is really cool. Um, and it was the, 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 just the amazing relationship between predator and prey and how, and, and again, it's not done for worship, but I'm going to put these words in how God gave to each certain capabilities to make it more or less an equal battle, you know, like the eagle against the rabbit. I thought that was really, really cool. All right. Now you think no chance, right? The rabbit has no chance. Actually, the rabbit's got a very good chance. Because the eagle's wings are so big that when it gets down close to the ground, it, it kind of loses lift. And then it, it, it's really pathetic. Once the eagle gets on the ground, it's over. The rabbit's gone. All right. If it doesn't have it by then, rabbit wins. All right. Because it's kind of hopping, you know, awkwardly. But when it's in full flight coming down, rabbit's in trouble. All right. So, you know, it's just interesting to watch. And, the, and there were like seven or eight of these pairings that they studied. Like uh, uh, there was... Um, what was it, a, a snake and a squirrel of some sort or whatever. And it was interesting to watch these different, the way they would battle. And I, I just think the variety is amazing, isn't it? I mean, we could just, the rest of our lives, just be studying what God's done. And I, in, in, in Job, doesn't God go through and kind of boast about some of these capabilities, what the ostrich can do, how fast it runs, even though it's an idiot? You know, it, like, look how it treats its young. I mean, it puts us down on the ground. I mean, maybe it could just kick the, you know, the shells of the eggs and the crap. But, when it runs, boy, it goes fast. I just think it's interesting, you know, um, and, and just how God boasts in the great strength of the behemoth, you know, the beast, whatever it is, and, and, and all of these different things. God made all those things, and, they, and he made them to glorify himself, the creativity. It's just, just marvelous. Do you think there are any species on earth that we haven't noticed yet or haven't commented on or observed? I think there there got to be, especially in the deep. You know, way, way down, like five miles down and all that. There's some creepy-looking, nasty creatures down there. Have you seen some of these things? Like, you wouldn't put them in pictures or, or like, in a mobile over, like, a four- or five-year-old's bed. It's like, look at take it away. You know, that kind of thing. But they're creepy-looking. But God, God made those, you know? I have odd thoughts, don't I? But I'll tell you what. I mean, but I think it's just amazing all the things that God's made. All right, next thing, uh, the impermanence of all created matter. In uh, Psalm 90 and verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Here, God is set over against the mountains. Though they may seem like forever, God predates them. And God will actually, um, in some sense, remove them and remake them, I guess, in the new heaven, the new earth. First Timothy 6.17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The word is uncertain. Physical, material things are uncertain. They are impermanent. God alone is permanent. Uh, and then uh, Psalm 19, 1 and 2. Another, another verse, I think, that teaches this is all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. So there God contrasts impermanence that we see just built into the physical world with the word. Okay? The grass of the field here today, tomorrow thrown in the fire, Jesus says. But the word of God stands forever. And so these things are impermanent. They're transitory, uh, etc. All right. So there's also another aspect, and that is the creation of the spiritual universe. There is a spiritual universe which we cannot perceive by our five senses. The spiritual universe which surrounds us can only be perceived by faith. 
Okay? By faith we understand that there is an invisible world. So when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, uh, we know that there is a heavenly realm as, as much as there are just atmosphere and outer space above us. There, there is the heavenly realms. We use that kind of language. Okay, Revelation 10, 6, we've already seen this. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, he created the heavens and all that is in them. Okay, well, what is that? You know, what is that? What are the heavens and all that is in them? Well, probably, it's not here, but I would, I would say, you know, in Ephesians 6, it gives us a sense of this, where it says, uh, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. Well, that's a lot of terms there. Rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I don't believe this is many words for the same thing. I think it's that, and clearly there, we're supposed to take our stand against these things. So this is the organization of Satan's kingdom. He has an organized evil kingdom. So this implies, and uh, you know, there, there's no clear mathematics on this. It does say that the dragon took a third of the stars and cast them to the earth. And so some people think that a third of the spiritual beings rebelled against God with Satan and were thrown down to the earth. That's fine, and I accept that. In any case, the demons had to have their origin somewhere. But this terminology is about the most specific we'll ever get in terms of an organization of the evil that opposes us. Okay? Jesus said, if Satan is divided against himself, how then can his kingdom stand? The word kingdom implies an organization. We are facing an organized foe. I do not believe in the omnipresence of Satan. I think he's awfully quick quicker than you, but he's not omnipresent, okay? And so therefore, I have believed that Satan hasn't dealt with any of us in our lives because we're not important enough. But he has dealt with us indirectly by dispatching evil beings to especially go after, you know, so we have, I think, assigned demons and people that, uh, I mean, demons that make our lives difficult who know us and know our weak spots and do, in fact, tempt us. And we can, in that sense, say, resist the devil and he will flee from you means his emissary, uh, the one that he has dispatched to make your life miserable. All right. But I do believe that this is what it means. We have to put on our spiritual armor to stand firm against it. This, the rulers, plural, and authorities, and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The indication you have that the, that the uh, good spiritual universe is organized, there are such terms as archangel and angel. The word arch means ruler or ruler angel, so there's some kind of organization or hierarchy on the good side too. And so we have, you know, also in the book of Daniel, Michael, the great prince that protects your people, uses the word prince there. So there's a sense of a hierarchy of, of order and of command. Uh, Michael is called the commander of the Lord's armies. And so there is that. And then in the book of Revelation, you have different, seems, orders of spiritual beings like these living creatures and uh, others. So there's this sense of things in the invisible realm. Nothing the five senses can prove. Nothing. Now, I'm not saying that the spiritual realm can't affect the physical realm. Clearly it can't. But I'm just saying that you can't prove the existence of the spiritual realm by empirical science, by the five senses. No laboratories can pick it up. Although in a recent Dan Brown novel I was reading, The Lost Sign, uh, the scientists in there said that the soul actually has mass. And so they got in this story, I can't believe this, some terminal patient was willing to be part of a scientific experiment. So 
when it was obvious he was going to die, was put in some hermetically sealed thing and weighed. And just as he died, I guess from lack of oxygen, in any case, uh, just as he died, um, you know, there was a slight change. And uh, it was pathetic. I just was laughing out loud as I was listening to this CD as Dan Brown gave us yet more theology and science all at once. So at any rate, the fact of the matter is the physical and spiritual are in some way distinct. But we know that it's there, don't we? By faith, we understand these things, the invisible realms, those things you cannot see, but you know they're there. I believe in demons. I believe in angels. I believe in the throne of God. I believe a hundred million angels are serving God, ready to serve Him at any moment. Thousands upon thousands attended Him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before Him. And so that worked out to a hundred million. So that's a lot of angels. I believe in that. But I can't see it. I just believe in it because the Word of God teaches it. What, what we're learning here tonight is God made all that. That's what I'm saying. Made it all, including Satan and all of his. He made it all, all of it. I mean, think about the power involved there, 100 million angels. And those are the good ones, you know. And you think about that, just the, the power of, of God in, in creating all of these things in the invisible spiritual realms. So God created them, um, says in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things created by him and for him. So Colossians 1.16 gives you that same kind of listing. Okay, Psalm 148. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. So again, that gives you that sense of spiritual beings. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Okay? Um, I'm not sure if we go into this. No. Um, yeah, well, later. All right, well, I, I want to say right now, I'm, I'm led to say, but later we'll get to the relationship of God to his creation. But God not only creates them, but sustains them. I believe that God sustains everything he creates. I don't think he creates anything that's cut free from him. Nothing. So in other words, that God creates and sustains. By your will, they were created and have their being. You've got to put those two together. So basically then, you continue to exist if God wills. Right? And that includes Satan as well. They are not equal, positive and negative equal. They're not at all. His existence is dependent on God. God continues or sustains his existence. Not only his, but all the rulers and authorities and powers. He sustains them. And not only does he sustain them, he sustains them in their powers, clearly. In other words, with that realm, that throne that they have and all that. And if you would do it differently, take that up with God. I'm just telling you, he sustains them in their power and continues to give them that power and will hold them accountable for what they do with that power and also constrains it and channels it for his own purposes, etc. But he upholds all things. You know, you look at, uh, and I think we covered this in the attributes thing, how God, uh, speaking of the stars, says because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And so God sustains all of the physical stars out there in the universe. The things that Flynn saw that night in the, in the sky, God is sustaining those things and keeping them alive. Okay? All right, now we get to the direct creation of Adam and Eve. Special moment uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, you know, the, the account's just rattling along and then suddenly in the middle of it, God just speaks and says, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the, the beasts, crawl along the, the ground, over every living thing on the surface of the earth. 
And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1. So God uh, clearly says that. Genesis 2.7 says specifically how God made the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. And the man became a living being. So there's an intimacy there. God forming, forming man, Adam, the first man out of the dust of the ground. And that intimacy is very strong. Uh, so much so that in the genealogy in Luke chapter 4, it says that, that Adam was the son of God. And, you know, if, if it weren't written in Scripture, you wouldn't think to use that terminology for Adam. But that's, that's literally what the genealogy says, that he was the son of God. I think it's, yeah, it's probably Luke 3. But the genealogy in Luke goes all the way up to Adam and then the last step, Adam, the son of God. And so there's that intimacy there uh, concerning the creation of Adam. God made him directly out of the dust of the ground. So the Lord God, then the woman comes from the, from the man's rib, uh, as we've seen. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. Again, that same level of intimacy. The fact that he specifically fashioned the first woman from this piece of the man's body. And so we have that same intimacy there in the creation of both male and female, God creating them in his image. Uh, and there's obviously, it's just set apart as different from anything else in the physical creation. Human beings are just different um, than anything else that God made. Um, Adam said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And First uh, Corinthians 11 teaches the same thing. So these, this is the special creation of, of Adam and Eve in the image of God. And I, again, this is just vital for us to recognize. We're not, we're not random bits of cosmic dust or whatever. We were created by God. We were created in the image of God. We are special and we are unique. We're not as fast as the, as the animals, some of the animals. We're not as strong. You know, we can't fly. You know, we can't swim in the depths of the sea and all that. But we rule. And we're in charge. And it's because of how God made us different um, than any of them. We're created in a unique sort of way. And so I, you know, I've said before, but I, I don't mind saying it again. Our sense of self-esteem, so to speak, should come from two things. Our special creation by God in his image and our redemption through the blood of Christ. These, this is where you get your esteem of who you are. and has nothing to do with your performance. has nothing to do with what could be put on a resume or your IQ or any of that. It just has to do with you being a human being and then you being a Christian believer in Christ. So that's where we get it from. Okay, uh, The creation of time. Um, I don't understand what time is. Time is... Have you ever noticed time is just weird? I'm convinced time isn't linear. You know, time flies when you're having fun. You know, why does that? Why, Andy? Why does it fly when you're having fun? Why does time slow down when you're not having fun? <laughs> huh? I've found that there's other times that time doesn't that time flies. Time flies when you're taking a final exam and it's not going well. And so I'm not having fun then, you know. It's not fun at all. I'm going to fail, you know, and, and, and I'm I'm thinking that. Um and so that's not that's not fun for me. I, I just find that time isn't linear. It's not but time from the very beginning was linked to physical events, the cosmos that God put the sun and the moon and the stars in the heavens to mark seasons and days and years. It says so we get our, our sense of time from the orbit of the planets and from the rotation of the earth and the, the, the evening and morning there, there was the first day. And so these physical events are tied to to the progression of time. 
Okay, Job 36.26, it says, How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. So that just speaks of the eternity of God. Again, same thing in Psalm 90. Uh, Before the mountains were born, you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years are in your sight, in your sight, or like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Before Abraham was born, I am, said Jesus. And then Second Peter 3, 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And that, again, that just has to do with God's patience in redemptive history. It seems to be moving along slowly, but it's going exactly as God intended. And uh, God is patient, all right? I am the Alpha and the Omega, said the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Time, by the way, has a purpose. I think the purpose is meaningless apart from redemptive history. I always speak in terms of that. God has a plan to redeem his elect from every tribe and language and people and nation. He's unfolding that plan. That's what time is for. And when that is done, time will end. That's why Matthew 24, 14, which I'll preach on this Sunday, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There's a purpose to this whole unfolding of time, all of it. All right, Uh, the work of the Son and the Holy Spirit in creation. Uh, We get the fuller explanation of this in the New Testament, but it's there. Uh, The first indication you get is in Genesis 1, 2. It's not in your outline there. It says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. So from the very beginning, we have this idea of the Spirit of God uh, and just kind of resting over that in a a very powerful way. Uh, The Holy Spirit, it's interesting that you would have the mention of the Holy Spirit of God so soon, so early. But again, it's that indication of of the power of the triune God. You also get a little bit right there in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, this kind of thing, a sense of that. Maybe, did you cover this kind of stuff last week? Okay. So it's all, it all builds on it. Uh, but then the special work of Jesus in particular, through Christ, through the Word of God, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. It's a very deep concept. You know, it's, it says in Psalm 33, by the Word of the Lord were the heavens made. But then John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. And so it really links Jesus to Word. And so it's like, by Jesus then was everything made. I don't know what that means. I don't think I ever will. What does it mean, by Jesus, the Father made everything, or through Jesus? I don't know what that... Jesus isn't a pipe or a piece of electric wire. I don't know what it means that through Jesus, the Father made everything, but I just accept that kind of language. In some way, through Jesus, God the Father. And God the Father didn't make anything apart from Jesus. It wasn't like he made 90% or 60% of the world through Jesus and then the other 40% on his own. Everything that was made was made through Jesus. That's powerful when you think about your own existence. It was through Jesus that God the Father made you. Isn't that powerful when you think about that? I mean, and, and think about just the arrogance of the Jews to reject Jesus, their creator. Now, you could say they didn't know who he was. I know that, but still, he was their creator. And so for him to come, I mean, again, only in that way would Jesus' statement how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under a wing. Hen? You know, who are you? He's like some 30-something rabbi from, you know, some son of a carpenter saying, I wish I could have gathered all your people together like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Who are you? I'm your creator. That's who I am. I'm your creator. I made you. Or the Father made you through me, speaking more technically. You know, it's just an amazing statement, amazing thought. But it's through Jesus that God made all things. 
You know, and then First uh, Corinthians eight six. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom there's that that word again, through through whom all things came and through whom we live. We've already seen Colossians one sixteen and uh, uh, Hebrews one two. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. We've already seen this uh, Genesis one two concerning the Holy Spirit. Uh, Job thirty three four says, "The Spirit of God has made me; the breath of the Almighty gives me life." Psalm 104, verse 30, when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. So through the Holy Spirit, also the power of the Spirit, God creates, sustains, upholds all things. All right, so we've gotten to the basic facts of creation. Now, why did he make it? You know, Jonathan Edwards wrote a great work, The End for Which God Created the World. And so he meditates on this, the the end or the reason, the ultimate purpose, why God made all things. The heading says here, God created the universe to show his glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, I will say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You know, it's interesting. This idea of created for the glory of God is pervasive throughout scripture, but this is the only passage that directly says it. That's why you keep seeing it over and over. It's because this is the one that openly says, I made you for my glory. But it does come up, you know, in other in other ways. It's just not as clear as this one verse in Isaiah 43, uh, Revelation 4:11, for example. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will uh, they were created and have their being. Here, this verse, all this verse is saying is, it is right for you to get the glory for it because you did it. That's really what it's saying. So the implication, the connection between God did it and therefore it's for the praise of His glory, just comes right across in Revelation 4. And verse 11, so God deserves glory for having made all things. Jeremiah 10, 12, by God, sorry, but God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. So again, power, wisdom, and understanding. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to see the physical creation and discern the attributes of God. Romans chapter one teaches us that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature are clearly understood from what has been made so that we are without excuse. So that's us in our lost state. Okay, What we're saying is in our found state, filled with the Spirit, we then go back to physical creation and say, show me yourself. What, tell me what, what you are like. Did you see the rainstorm this afternoon? I was sitting right over there at that window. They're painting my office, so it really smells right now. But um, you know, I think it actually would kill brain cells if I spent the day in here. So I told Flynn, I said, I had the largest office in the building today. So I sat up here. This is my office. So I was reading uh, John Owen's Death of Death, trying to understand it one more time. And so just walking, pacing back and forth. And then all of a sudden, this squall blew up. I mean, did you see it? It was just powerful wind and the rain. Yeah, yeah it was mid-afternoon. And um, but there were workers working outside, and they were just kind of looking around, just kept on, you know, a little, maybe some rain's coming. Well, they, uh, they should have been better prepared because when it came, it came. And they were soaked to the skin because they were more than 20 feet away from their truck. You know, I mean, by the time it came, boy, it was like the heavens just dumped down. And so they sat in the truck till it was over. But it was awesome. I just love a good storm, don't you? I just love a good storm. Unless nobody gets hurt, no property damage. I just love a good storm. So at any rate, just God displays or puts his power on display over and over. All right, Jeremiah 10:16. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, 
including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. So God creates all things for a display of his glory. And then once we're cured of our nasty idolatry, and the essence of our idolatry is tend to worship and, and serve created things rather than the creator. Once we have been cured of that by the gospel, it's the only cure there is. There is no other cure for idolatry than the gospel. It is the only cure for idolatry, but it is a perfect cure. And so we are cured from idolatry to serve the living and true God. Having done that, then, we are able to use physical creation as a springboard for praise and worship. And so we can praise God who made the storm, the wind and the rain, and we can thank Him. You know, We know that it's the Heavenly Father's display of love to both the righteous and the unrighteous, to, to redeem sinners and to unredeem sinners, the sunshine and the rain. Jesus taught us that this is the display of his love for his enemies, right? But the difference between a Christian and non-Christian is we know it and we praise God for it. They just run and try to get out of the, out of the rain, you know? But we can knowingly give praise to the God who gave it. Isn't that wonderful? That's what makes Thanksgiving so wonderful for Christians and not so wonderful for non-Christians because we can thank God for all of these things. A good harvest is evidence of God's goodness to us. So we have someone to thank. Creation of all things. All right. At the beginning, the universe that God created was very good. This is so incredibly important. This runs directly contrary to many pagan philosophers and philosophies who tend to blame physical creation for all of our sin problems. We recognize that we have sin problems. We recognize that we lack self-control, that we burn with passion, that we overeat, that we have sexual immorality and all that. So a Plato or an Aristotle or somebody else would come along and say, the problem is physical stuff itself. That's where the problem is. Buddhism will do the same thing. If we just get away from our physical side, that's not the Bible's answer at all. God's going to make you more physical than you can possibly imagine. You'll be forever physical when you're in your resurrection body. It's going to be a physical body. So God clearly upholds the physical universe. And he did so right from the beginning by declaring it very good. You know, so God saw all things that he had made and it was very good. That's got to be NIV because it actually says, behold, it was very good. NIV is just allergic to the word behold. I don't know why, but they decided as a strategy, they're going to just translate it out. They translated it out. Why? It's in there. So say behold. And I think it ought to be behold and not look. You know, look. I just don't think look is equal to behold. What do you think, Flynn? I, I think behold is behold. And, and behold needs to be a weird word that we don't use any other time. Behold, you know, something like that. It's a Bible word, isn't it? And so I think we ought to say, behold, it was very good. What did I say? I'm sorry, what did I do? All right, tell me later. Don't tell me now. I'm, I'm, I want to keep going. But at any rate, God saw that everything was very, very good. Demons come along and they teach us that the physical stuff is evil. Why do they do that? Because it serves their purposes. It's not true. And if they can lie to us about something, then they can actually get us to sin in, in other ways. There are a lot of different ways to sin. But uh, demons, demonic teachings, come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared, and they forbid people to marry. So that reminds me of the shakers. Remember them? Males and females are not allowed to touch each other. They for, forbid... I mean, that's, that's part of that human philosophy that the body is evil. And so marriage is evil and they weren't allowed to touch each other. They make great furniture. They have very clean rooms. All right. I love the Shaker village that we went and saw. But what a weird cult. That's why I just kept thinking, what a weird cult. 
And thankfully, they were not very good at evangelism. And so in a couple of generations, they're gone. I actually think there are a couple of shakers left up in Vermont or something like that. Maine. Yeah, there's like six of them left. Not touching anything. But anyway, they're up there. And not doing much evangelism either, thankfully. Uh, oh, are they? Okay. Mm, anyway. But uh, everything that God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Okay, so clearly there's a way to be immoral with physical things, with uh, marital relations, with food. There is. But this is the other way. This is the total abstinence asceticism route, which is decried also in Colossians 2. You know, and that is just uh, completely wrong. Okay? Uh, Command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So these things are physically good, created, and made to be uh, be enjoyed. Um, So everything that God made is good. And the ultimate proof of this is the incarnation of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Like it wasn't an accident that he took on a human body. He purposefully laid down his body on the cross, but he took it back up again in the resurrection. The body isn't evil, okay? Though the body is your problem now, it definitely is, okay? It's called the body of sin, body of death, because it is trained in sin and and you have habits of sin and you've got to fight them with habits of holiness, that's sanctification. It's It's a battle until you die, okay? And there's no escaping that. As long as you're in the body, you're going to fight. You have to fight. There's nothing you can You fight or sin. Those are your options. So you must fight and you've got to be strong and fight. But someday you'll be released from this body of death and you'll be in a resurrection body with no sin habits and you'll be free. You'll be done. And that's beautiful. But you will be in a body. Just as Jesus is in a body now. A physical body. And so the universe is very good. Creation, always distinct from God, yet always dependent on God. We already ta- uh, touched on this. Transcendent, yet imminent. God, heaven, even the highest heavens can't contain God. God stoops down to look at the, at the, at the heavens. So God is immense. He is, he is huge. Uh, you know, he creates all things. He sits enthroned above the surface of the earth and all things serve him. And so you have these little diagrams given us from Wayne Grudem. God ruling over creation. You see that? Uh, God ruling over creation. This is the biblical view of transcendence and imminence. Transcendence means that God's infinitely above creation. Heaven, even the highest heavens, can't contain you. He stoops down to look at the heavens. That's transcendence. Imminence is in Him we live and move and have our being. That's an imminence verse if ever there was one. In Him we live and move and... You don't exist apart from God. So He is right there with you every moment. So Now, I do believe there's relational language that that the wicked God knows from afar. But that's relationship language. When they're wicked, he knows them from afar, but he knows everything about them. He's right there, and he's right there to judge them when the time comes. But I'm just saying, relationally, they're distant from God. Okay, Uh, Materialism is, there it is, a circle with the universe. That's all there is. There is no God. Pure materialism is there is no God. God is part of the material universe. It's some synapse brain thing going on in us and we create a bunch of cultural trinkets and rituals and all that. It's all material. That's the way an atheistic scientist looks at religion. Uh, It's just part of the material universe. So Carl Sagan says, the cosmos is all there ever has been, is, or ever will be. That's his God. You see that? That's pure materialism right there. All right? And, and so they, he dispenses with the question of what made the cosmos. He said, well, what made your God? Nothing. It always exists. Well, that's the way I am about the cosmos. You know, nothing made it and nothing needed to make, make it. It's always been here and it always will be. 
That's his answer, okay? Actually, pretty hard to refute, except the scripture gives us things to say. But, but out of that mindset, he can't be budged because to him, it's a ridiculous question. What made the cosmos? It just is here and it rearranged through evolution. It's stuff like that. So that's, that's how he gets it. But it's pure materialism. The universe is all there is. Then pantheism is God is all there is. So there's, you know, God is creation. Creation is God. It's all the same thing. And there are, you know, pantheistic, you know, pagan religions that make an, just equate God to everything. Dualism is that God and the universe are separate. And then it's just God is good. And this is like philosophy of Plato and all that. It's that God's up there and we're down here in the nasty physical universe. And so if we could just get up and be spiritual like God, we'd be pure and holy. So that's dualism. Uh, that's not biblical. And then deism is that God and creation, God made the creation, uh, and, but he doesn't have anything to do with it. So there's no arrow coming down. He doesn't get involved. These diagrams are imprecise, but you get the idea. The, the idea is that uh, God doesn't get involved in the physical uh, creation. All right. Points of application. Well, just worship. God created everything for the praise of his glory. So we should be worshiping, feeding on it. When you see a, something that amazes you, praise God for it. Thank God for it, you know. I just think I think it's incredible all the things that God has that God has made the complexity of it all just marvelous um, and and realize everything in creation has a purpose. Thank God that Noah is more righteous than you and didn't kill those mosquitoes when he had the chance. All right, he had the chance, but he did not kill those mosquitoes. And good thing he might have gotten some specific orders from God. Noah, I know you'll be tempted to kill the mosquitoes. Don't do it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yes, Lord, <laughs> whatever you say. But there is a purpose for everything, if only to remind you that you're not in heaven yet, all right? I mean, sometimes, you know, I've ever had a beautiful, like, picnic set up and something comes physical that kind of ruins it? Frequently mosquitoes. I mean, that'll do it. And, you know, I, I made a, a beautiful picnic bench area with a platform and all that. We never use it. And why don't we use it? Bugs, all right? We can't get, can't get away from the bugs. So... Anyway, human beings, uh, it, we are stewards of creation. We're called on to be stewards of creation. Uh, we're called on to, I mean, not to be tree huggers, but to realize that God, this is my Father's world, and we ought not to try. I think about this frequently. You know, I, I think that while we're not ecologists in that sense, we should be caring more about the creation than non-Christians do. Uh, humans are created by design and in God's image, so all people have inherent worth, as I just said. Our fundamental worth is that we're created in the image of God. Christian scholarship in scientific fields that study the universe, uh, astronomy, botany, biology, geology, we can, we can worship God by these sciences. Uh, clarify and correct fuzzy thinking and false doctrine on, on God's uh, relation to creation. We just quickly went through different ways that people think. Uh, we need to be able to respond to these false thoughts and teach the truth. Fellowship with the transcendent God who relates to you and his creation imminently. You know, we need to, we need to, God is infinitely above us and yet he's right here and we can speak to him directly as a, as a creator God. And I, I just think in some mysterious way, those same things are going to be there in heaven. God is going to be more imminent than we can possibly imagine. We will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. I mean, it's just that intimacy. But still, I think there's going to be that sense of his infinite, infinite aboveness. I mean, he's going to still be God and we're not. And so there's going to be both of those in a beautiful way. And then finally, pray for others who have humanized God and for those who have distanced him from themselves. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the things that we've learned uh, about creation. We could be talking about it for hours to come. But I pray, O oh Lord, that you would be working in us as messengers to a lost world. I think about this woman that I would love to reach out to with the gospel. Give me a way to get at her with the gospel, to teach the truth 
uh, to her about the Creator who made everything and how He sent His Son into the world. And Father, I pray that we would walk in newness of life based on these things and that we would be uh, the kind of people that You want us to be while we wait for You to redeem the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.